We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. As I think back to that evening, one of the things that stood out to me, we're, we're doing this series, Authentic Christianity, that on that evening we had this incredible privilege of seeing before our eyes authentic Christianity put on display. Think about John Rishahana, the bishop of the Shira Diocese in Rwanda. I mean, here, here is a man who, in the aftermath, the genocide was already over, and there were these roving bands of um, criminals who one night attacked his niece as she left his house. And as I told you that night, they, they skinned all the skin off her arms, and then a gang of them raped her, and then they cut her neck and killed her and her mother and her brother and her sister. And here's John Rushahana, who has so embraced the Christian faith in his life that he not only forgives these perpetrators, but he then is one of the key figures leading the nation of Rwanda as a nation to embrace forgiveness and to practice these reconciliation acts where they, if somebody perpetrated a crime in the genocide, if they will confess their crime to the victims or the survivors, and the victims and the survivors then um, express how they were affected by this crime, not only are, is there a personal reconciliation, but these people by law are forgiven and given a place back in society. And many of them then end up building houses for the survivors that they burn down the houses. And, and it's healing a nation. It, it's, it's, it's a mir- miraculous thing. And then we saw Jason and, and Jennifer Johnson tell the story of how they've forsaken their dreams to go to a place that God is calling them to, to serve as missionaries. Now, these are two living, breathing, flesh and blood examples of real Christianity. And and I'm not saying that you've got to be a bishop or go through a genocide or be a veterinarian missionary to be a Christian, a real Christian. What I'm talking about is this. The Johnsons and the Rushahanas have redirected their entire lives around serving only one master. Jesus Christ. I'm talking about how they have sworn total allegiance to Christ. And this has produced within them an ability to hear God's voice. To forgive their enemies. To have a deep confidence that Jesus really is the Son of God. And that he speaks to them. That's kind of weird, drinking the red Kool-Aid kind of stuff. And they go with him. They've oriented life around not only his plan in general, but his specific plan for them and his mission in this world. Now, that's authentic Christianity. That's the real deal. And that's the picture that Luke is painting for us in his gospel. It's the picture that Luke is kind of unfolding for us now. As we've been working our way through Luke's gospel, tonight we're in the ninth chapter 
up until now, one of the things that we have seen is these, these images of authentic Christianity that Bishop John Rishana and the Johnsons illustrated for us. But one thing we have not seen is how someone gets to that point, gets to the point of being able to actually forgive an enemy. Gets to the point of being able to hear the voice of God say something specifically to you and knowing it's not last night's pizza. It's actually the voice of the one true living creator God of this universe speaking specifically to you. Up until this point in Luke's gospel, all that we've been given is an image of Jesus, who he is, and some glimpses of what it looks like to follow him. But what we haven't seen is how one gets to the place where one actually does these things. Look, look at it this way. In Luke's gospel, there are these crowds all around Jesus constantly, right? Because he's the coolest magician in town. He's turning water into wine and, you know, walking on water and raising the dead. And he's doing all this crazy stuff before Spielberg ever came along. So this was the most entertaining game in town. But not only that, when he speaks, he's got truth. And so there's these mad, motley crews of crowd all around him. And then one day... In chapter 6, we, we didn't read it tonight, but we read it a few weeks ago. Jesus gets this big crowd together. He spends a whole night in prayer saying, God, which of these are going to come in closer? And then after a whole night of praying, he picks 12 and he invites them in closer to him. Now that's in chapter 6. And in, sure enough, in chapter 6 and 7 and 8, there's the disciples. They're always right there. In fact, look at the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1. Soon after he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. Now, up until chapter 9, between 6, when he picks the twelve, and chapter 9, that's all they do. They hang around. They see him. They witness, and they're a little closer to the action, and they get some kind of sad comments that not everybody else gets. But starting in Luke chapter 9 and going through to the end of his gospel, which is a biography of the life of Jesus, something changes in the passage that Heather read to us. There is a shift. In fact, for the first time, they're called apostles. All of a sudden in chapter 9, these 12 begin to be involved in what Jesus is doing. Not just bystanders, but the paragraph she read at the very, very beginning, they begin to be active agents in Jesus's ministry, in his mission. Now, Luke wrote another book called Acts. It's kind of like Gospel of Luke part two. And in the book of Acts, it revolves around these 12, these disciples actually living out Jesus's ministry when Jesus has gone off the scene. But when you read Luke chapters 6 through 8 and you look at these 12, they're not anywhere near the kind of faith they have in the book of Acts. They're not anywhere near the kind of faith that John Rushahana demonstrated for us and Jason and Jennifer Johnson. And what happens between Luke chapter 9 verse 1 and the end of Luke's gospel when they get into the second book, Acts, is how they become those kinds of Christians. I think that's incredibly relevant. How do you take a group of ordinary people who go to church every Sunday and they hear all of these things, right? They're watching it and every now and then they get a little glimpse here and a little glimpse there. But how do we go from being people who are just watching Christianity 
whether it's on a weekly basis or on a every Christmas and Mother's Day kind of basis. How do we go from that to being people who have the ability to forgive our enemies, to being people who hear the voice of God and bend our entire lives around his mission in this world and his specific role for us in that kind of mission? How do we become people like the Rushahanas and the Johnsons? How does this happen? Well, Luke chapter 9 is a great place to begin to develop how someone moves into the Christian life. But, but before we look at it, let me just give one little kind of disclaimer. Luke's gospel is not an engineering handbook. There are no four lists of this, five steps to that. It's a story. Because stories are the best way to capture real life, okay? It's, it's a true story. It's a narrative. But because it's a story, no two people's journey of faith in this book is the same. Jesus encounters lots of people and invites them into faith, and it's never the same. In fact, when we look at the book of Luke, it kind of resists us making any journey of faith the standard journey of faith. Why why is that? Because faith, like snowflakes, no two journeys are the same. It's not neat. It's not tidy. um, It doesn't boil down into three steps or four steps. You know, it's kind of like saying, how do I know if I'm in love? Well, there's no three steps for that or four steps for that. With that being said, we can, as we look closely at Luke, and chapter 9 in particular, began to pick up on some kind of motifs that tend to be common to lots of different people's journey in faith. So what I'm going to do is take these verses that Heather read for us, and I want to show you five motifs that are developed here, and then they play out through the rest of his gospel and into Acts. I want to show you kind of five Not steps, because they don't go in any particular order, and it's kind of two steps this way and then one step back, and we'll talk more about that. But I want to show you how becoming a real Christian, Luke is showing us in the the life of the disciples, requires these five things. Number one, God's initiative, and I'll talk more about each, but just to say them very quickly. For Luke, he's showing us that becoming a real Christian, really embracing the authentic Christian faith, requires God's initiative. It requires faith, it requires repentance, it requires following Jesus, and it requires involvement in mission. Let me show you what I'm talking about out of this pivotal chapter in Luke. First of all, Luke is clear that for anybody to step deeply into the authentic Christian life, it requires God's initiative. Let let me show you particularly what I mean. Go back to chapter 5, verse 27. If if you have a Bible, if you're just listening, that's fine. After this, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. This is a guy just doing his job, ordinary Joe, okay, doing his his work. And Jesus said, follow me, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, that's just one. I'm not going to show you all of them, but... Throughout Luke's gospel, it's Jesus that takes the initiative when people move deeply into the Christian life. Now go to chapter 9, the passage that that we had read for us earlier, and look at verse 18. 
Now, it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets of old is risen. Then he said, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Now, here's a question. How did Peter know that? And this is, this is an important question. This is privileged knowledge. Up until now in Luke's gospel, only supernatural characters have known this. At his birth, the angels knew it. And they confessed it. And then at his baptism, God said it. And then in chapter 4, there's this guy that's demon-possessed. And when Jesus goes to cast the demon out, the demon knows it. But up until now, no human has known this. In fact, go back to chapter 8, verse 25. They're in this boat, big, crazy, hairy storm comes up. And these are professional fishermen, all right? These are dock-working kind of dudes. And they think they're about to drown because this is like the perfect storm kind of situation. You know, George Clooney or whoever that was. And they get scared and Jesus is sleeping and they wake him up and look what it says in verse 25. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled and they said to one another, who then is this? So what happened between chapter 8, verse 25 and chapter 9, verse 20, where Peter doesn't say, who is this? He says, who this is? Now, you might say, well, right before he confessed that it was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he did this. Jesus had performed a miracle, right? Remember, there were 5,000 people. They were really hungry. And Jesus said, feed them to the disciples. We just heard this read. And the disciples said, we don't have any food, right? We don't have any way to feed them. And Jesus said, just give them these little bitty sardines that we've got. And they were like, 5,000 people, five sardines, not exactly a very filling meal. And, and then Jesus performs this incredible miracle. And the disciples who were doubted his ability to do it, what did he do after he performed the miracle? He gave each one of them their own personal basket of leftovers. It's kind of saying, you doubted, here's your basket of leftovers. Oh, you doubted too? Here's a bat. So was it that? Well, the interesting thing, literarily, look at verse 17. They all ate and were satisfied and what was left was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. And then there's this kind of abrupt shift in the narrative. Now, it happened that if he was praying alone, we're not told what their response was to the miracle. Look, they had previous to this seen Jesus raise somebody from the dead. And that didn't make it click. What is the important thing Jesus is doing when he asked the question? He's praying. It says he was praying alone. They were with him. And then out of this praying, he asked them the question. It's as if... Peter, or I mean Luke, who's recording this story, he's making the point that understanding who Jesus is is a supernatural gift. It's a supernatural gift. Now, throughout this series, I've been saying to you that one of the most basic and essential parts of authentic Christianity is the belief that the one and only living God has fulfilled his promises to one nation, the nation of Israel, to rescue the entire creation. And he's doing this through Jesus Christ, who is his son. And what I'm telling you tonight is that that belief can only come from God. You can't muster it up. And maybe you've got people who just don't believe it. And you can give them every little book proving Jesus until you're blue in the face. They could even see Jesus perform miracles, calm storms, raise the dead. And it still requires a supernatural gift. You can't get it on your own. Becoming a real Christian requires 
God's initiative. Now, secondly, becoming a real Christian requires faith. Faith in Jesus' ability. Faith that He is the Son of God. And because He's the Son of God, He has the ability to provide for your needs. Now, look back at chapter 9, the first six verses. Jesus gets the twelve together. And He sends them out, verse 2, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. In verse 3, He said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Why is he doing this? Because they've got to learn to trust him if they're going to embrace authentic Christianity. Because authentic Christianity can only bloom in the muck and the mire of real life when you're faced with a real opportunity to trust him for a tangible need. And so he forces them To do what they failed to do in the storm, right? In the storm, they got scared and they said, Jesus, don't you care about us? And he rebuked him. He said, where's your faith? So now he says, okay, we know that's where you're struggling in this whole deal of embracing Christianity. So I'm going to push you out the door. You know, you're the little bird. I'm going to push you out the nest. I'm going to push you out the door. Don't take any money. Don't take a credit card. Don't take a change of clothes. Don't take, go with like a quarter tank of gas. And you just go and you trust That when you're on mission for me, that prayer we prayed at the very beginning as we got our hearts ready for worship. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What does it say? Give us this day. Trust that I will give you your daily bread. Authentic Christianity requires faith. Take nothing for... This is huge faith. And it's exactly what they failed to do in in chapter 8, verse 25. But guess what? In chapter 9, down at verse 10, they return and they're all excited. You know, they're like a little Tasmanian devil. They told him all that they had done and they, they did it this time. This time they had faith. They actually trusted. To become a real Christian, you've got to get to the place where you actually trust This invisible God that you kind of think you believe in to provide for you. Three, becoming a real Christian requires repentance. And by repentance, I mean that redirection of your heart and your life toward the purposes of God. To become a Christian, you've got to redirect your whole life away from your agenda, your plans, your will to the purposes of God in general and God specifically for your own life. Now look at verse 24. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? Jesus is saying here, the person who wishes to preserve his own way of living at the end of the day, is not able to be my follower. If you cling to your own way of living, to your own desires, your own agenda, your own plans, at the end of the day, you're going to lose it. And you're going to lose Christ. And you... Now look, these are harsh words. But this is Jesus trying to coach His disciples into becoming the kind of people that can really embrace the Christian faith. And this is a critical part of it, that redirection of your heart and your life 
for the purposes of God. So becoming a real Christian requires God's initiative. It requires faith. It requires repentance. And fourthly, it requires following Jesus. Look at verse 23. And he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So look, um, let me give you a little term in literature called an inclusio. It's when you have something at the beginning that you also have at the end. So at the beginning of this verse, it says, if anyone would come after me. And then at the end of the verse, it says, if anyone would follow me. Okay, so that's that's like a parenthesis. Think of that as the two parentheses. And in the middle, it defines what it means to follow Jesus. In other words, you're not just left up to yourself to think up whatever floats your boat. Following Jesus, he says, means two things. What are they? Deny yourself. To deny yourself is to... Now, we don't have time to go into all of this, but in this particular culture and in this setting, it means something very specific. It means you deny, your, you, deny you set aside the relationships, the extended family, the inner circle of friends that make up your identity. And you get your identity elsewhere. Now, that's huge. And that is hard for us. That your identity is not an Alabama fan or an Auburn fan or a Saints fan. Or that your identity is not that you're from Mountain Brook or from... That your identity is... For me, it's not that I'm a Spears. It's not that I'm married to Janelle, the Spears. My identity... To deny yourself... Is to deny your identity. Deny yourself. You set that aside. And then he says, take up your cross daily. Now, Jesus is referring to a common practice in that area of the world. Rome had taken over. You saw the gladiator, right? They beat up everybody and they win. And in Roman society, when someone was sentenced to death by crucifixion, The criminal had to carry the cross beam of the cross from the point of sin, from the place where they're sentenced, the court, to the place where they're impaled on the cross. And Jesus is saying Christianity is that journey in between. It's Jesus is saying to any would be disciple. To follow me means you take up the position of the man who is already condemned to death. The attitude of self-denial, which regards life in this world, is already finished. It's the attitude of dying to yourself. And and he's saying you do this every day. Every day, you know where you live? You live in between the sentencing and the execution as someone who is dead to this world. That's what it means to follow me. Now, the reason he says that's what it means to follow me is look back up at verse 20. Who are you? Peter says you're the Christ, the son of God. Verse 21, he strictly charged them, commanded them to say to no one, saying the the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and be raised on the third day. Look, Peter says, this is who you are. And then Jesus comes back and says, now, let me tell you what it means. You got the identification right, but you don't understand the content of that title. The content is 
I will suffer, I will be rejected, I will be killed, and I will be raised. And then he shifts gears. So he goes from who he is to what it means, and then he immediately shifts gears in verse 23. And if you want to follow me, you have to live like I'm living. I'm denying myself. And I'm dying to myself. And I'm embracing the identity God is giving me. Now, finally, Luke shows us that for a person to really embrace Christianity, he must be involved with Jesus's missionary agenda. That's the part, uh, verses 1 to 6, that we already looked at, where Luke is showing us that following Jesus will eventually entail sharing in his missionary agenda to tell this world that Jesus really is the Son of God. And to meet needs in this world, in the power of Jesus Christ. And if you go on through Luke and then through Acts, you see this is exactly what plays out. Now, here's the question though. Holy cow! How do I do that? Right? Who in the world wants to live in between sentencing and execution? Who in the world wants to be pushed out of the nest, you know, never having flapped your little bitty wings before? How do we get to the place where we can be these kinds of people? Because to be honest, the disciples aren't there. How do we do this? it's, It's certainly not a linear journey. It's certainly like, okay, now I believe in him. Oh, now I've got faith in him. Now I repent. I mean, it doesn't work like that. How do we get to this level of faith that qualifies authentic Christianity? The answer that Luke paints in this chapter is very refreshing. I mean, it it is wonderfully refreshing. I mean, in this chapter, we see the disciples on this journey, but you know what it is? It's two steps forward, one step back. Two steps backwards, one little bitty half step forward, side dance over here, they go over there. It's this crazy interplay that centers around two questions. Remember the question that Herod asked? Verse 7, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. Verse 9, Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this? And then Jesus asked the same question. Verse 18, who do the crowd say I am? The disciples give the exact same answer that, that Herod had gotten. And then Jesus says, who do you say I am? Look, in Luke chapter 9, there is this incredible, complex interplay of two things. A growing perception of who Jesus is mixed up with learning to follow him, to trust him, to deny yourself, to repent. And then you see him a little better. And then you follow him a little better. And then you see him a little. Luke chapter 9 is you can't untangle these two strands of the way of the disciple and seeing Jesus for who he is throughout the chapter. Let let me just show you. So in chapter 6, I told you he chose the 12. In chapter 8, we see they're with him. They're watching him. Chapter 8, verse 25, they have no idea who he is. Chapter 9, Jesus says, okay, you don't know who I am. Go out and tell people about me and it'll help you figure it out. So they actually go out on mission before they even know who he is. They're doing this kind of missionary work. And and guess what? They've got faith. They're actually trusting him to supply their needs. 
And then they come back and in verse 10, for the first time, they're called apostles. It's like they've arrived at a new, new place in life. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says, okay, we got to feed this crowd of people. And what do they say? We don't have any food. Why don't they have any food? Why don't they have any money? He told them, don't take any food or money, right? Let me give you a couple of reasons why this is a disastrous failure on the disciples' part. Number one, they had just seen that they could trust Jesus to supply food on their missionary journey. Number two, back in chapter five, they're with Jesus in a boat with Simon and he hasn't caught any fish. And Jesus says, throw the net over here and they get a catch bigger than they can even haul in. They saw there that Jesus has this miraculous ability to generate food. And even farther back in their memory, because they're good Jews, they know about Elisha. Because in their book, 2 Kings, Elisha feeds a 100 people with just a few little loaves of bread. And already in Luke's gospel, Jesus had been referred to as a modern-day Elisha. And they were there, and they saw that. So that story has already been pricked in their consciousness. And then they could go even farther back in their memory to Moses in the wilderness, same place it says they are now, and he fed the people by the power of God with manna for 40 years. Now, all of this adds up to the fact that in the face of all of this knowledge of Jesus' potential ability, the disciples just couldn't do it. And that's refreshing to me because there are many times in my life in the face of a whole lot of knowledge of what Jesus can do, I get sissified, you know, uh, or I get sarcastic to God or I get cynical to God. And then, and then after they fail, then all of a sudden they see who he is. So two steps back, one step forward. And then if we were to keep going through the chapter, they fail over and over and over again. Now, why am I saying this? To me, it's refreshing to see that even the name brand disciples upon whom the church was built, even for them, faith was a journey. And it wasn't an all-star journey. It was this circuitous start and stop, great success, disastrous failures. It's this journey. Now, I think about some of you that I've had conversations with and, and me in my own life and some good friends of mine. Think about how faith plays out. All of a sudden, you begin to have a sense that Jesus is the Christ. He really is the Son of God. And so you begin to put your trust in Him. And then all of a sudden, you have this growing conflict in you, this pressure that you've got to reorient your life and you've got to make these changes. And, and, and you get this chance to participate with God and His purposes and to witness about Him to, to your friends and to your coworkers and pray for the sick and to go on mission trips. And you do this stuff and then one day you... You disastrously fail and, and you don't even look like what you look like before you started the journey. And that's faith. And that's the faith we see in the disciples. Remember the parable of the soils last week? See, I think the question as you read through Luke chapter 9 is this. Where are you in the journey of faith? What is your current challenge to growing in the faith? 
Go back to chapter 8. Jesus told a story that's actually paradigmatic for the rest of his gospel. It kind of becomes the paradigm for which we can interpret all manner of journeys of faith. In chapter 11 and 12, he says the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and may not be saved. Where are you in the journey of faith? Are you struggling to even see that Jesus really is God? Is that hard for you? Or are you like the disciples and you're thick-headed? You've been in church maybe your whole life. Maybe your whole life. Maybe you've even seen miracles, but push comes to shove. When you're stripped down to the core of your being, you're just not sure if he is this God and not just some religious superstar like Gandhi or Buddha or just go down the list. I mean, is that, is that where you are? Look at chap- verse 13 of chapter 8. And then there are those on the rock. Those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. Is this you? Everything was going good, but all of a sudden, you met some situations in life, and it took all the rugs, it took everything out from under you, and you've lost it. I mean, that, 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 was, that was the storm for the disciples. They, they look like great dudes, you know, all of a sudden, until... Their life was threatened. And then they were like, we have no idea what we're doing. We're crazy. Who is this guy? He doesn't even care about us. One little storm took their whole, everything they had professed in front of other people, it took it away. Look at verse 14. And as for those, the seed that fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and the fruit does not mature. These are... Now, there are others who it's not um, stress and testing that takes away their faith. It's success and pleasure. that all of a sudden you wake up one day and there is no faith left. Where are you in the journey? What aspect of faith are you needing to embrace at this point in your own journey of faith? Is it that you need to come to grips? You need God, if he is God, to show you to Open your mind up to help you believe that Jesus is the Christ. What I'm trying to do is get you, if that's where you are, then be there. Then ask him if that's, if you, if Jesus really is God, and I can't believe that except for, then apparently the ball's in your court. Help me to believe that. Is that you? What are, are you somebody that, oh, yeah, you believe maybe like me? I've, I've never struggled believing that. I, 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 for me, that part comes easy. Maybe for some of you, that part comes easy. Maybe for you, the challenge is that faith is trusting God to provide what you need that you cannot provide for yourself. Are you going through something right now where trusting God is really, really hard? Or or maybe for you, the point that you need to really come to grips with is repentance. You believe he's God. You don't mind trusting him. But you've got an agenda and a plan and a way for your life. You've got your whole future mapped out. And God's welcome to be a part of it anytime he wants to come in. (laughs) And so you go to church and you just slot God into your life. Maybe that's where you're struggling. Or maybe for you, it's this daily following Christ and denying and taking up the cross. Or, or, or maybe for you, what right now, where God is calling you deeper into an authentic Christian faith, is maybe you need to begin to engage in Jesus' ministry, his mission, 
to this world. To share him with others. To te- Maybe you've never in your life opened your mouth up to a friend or a colleague or a coworker, and, and confessed to them that you believe Jesus is the Christ. That you believe all that weird stuff that he rose up from the dead and one day he's coming back and woohoo, I'm going to be part of the party. Maybe that's where you are. Wherever you are, I encourage you to relax and just keep on. I mean, right now we're, we're looking at the disciples. These are the dudes and they're disastrous failures. So just join them and, and trust God and take another step. And remember, when you hear somebody else talking about how they believe this and they do that, remember, there are no two faith stories that are the same. It's like snowflakes. They're they're all different. But I do want to encourage you to keep on because it matters. Look, Look at verse 26. I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't end where Jesus ended. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. You know what Jesus is saying here? He's saying there is another life. And it will be physical. And it will be embodied. And what you have now is not a it's not like. Um. more physical than the next life will be. This life is less physical. There is another life. And Jesus is saying that he alone is the arbiter of your destiny. I mean, that's hardcore stuff. He's saying everything depends on your relationship with him. Everything. He alone is the arbiter of your destiny. But he tells us what his judgment of you for all eternity will be based upon. It'll be based upon these two things that are so complexly intertwined in this chapter. Who you perceive him to be and how you follow him. And that's, that's what's great about this chapter is as you see him a little more clearly, take another step toward him and then you'll see him even better and take another step. And it's, it's this intertwined dance of following Christ and of seeing who he is. It matters. Let's pray.